So last week we began uh, this three-part series on the gift of life. We looked at a couple matters under the question we asked. The question we asked last week was, why are we separated from God? And what we saw was, first of all, God created us to be with him, but our sin has separated us from God. Our sin has separated us from God. And that's not our favorite subject to talk about, but we need to talk about the truth of that in order to know the answer that God provides. This week we're asking, why was Jesus born to die? Why was Jesus born to die? It is, our Chris, it is the Christmas season, and we rightly celebrate Jesus' birth, yet a major reason Jesus came, God sent Christ, was not to bolster the economy, but in order for him to die. And today we're going to talk about why that was the case. Why, did, why was Jesus born to die? And so the first point under that is uh, that sins cannot be removed by good deeds. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. I think my face has got a little something on it. Do you mind if I just take care of that real quick? Oh my, I've got a dirty rag. <laughs> it's not going to work very well, is it? This is a dirty, oily, car oil-soaked rag. Actually, it's shoe polish, but car oil, dirty car oil makes the point better, I think. So uh, this has been sitting around in my house for a long time, and just sitting there, it didn't get better on its own. And even if we try to clean it with anything natural, it's not going to work. So the stain of sin cannot be removed by anything that we do, just like this rag doesn't get better just by time passing, and it doesn't get better by trying to use our own human efforts to, to fix it. So uh, anyway, here you go. So there's nothing more natural for us than to suppose that the way that we offset our bad deeds or faults is by being or doing good, right? I mean, that's normal for us to think that way. For example, don't prisoners get time off for a good behavior? Or uh, if they're not prisoners but they're just sentenced to community service, they, they earn their way back into society? Or don't young drivers earn back their driving privileges by keeping their curfews? If they even do such a thing as curfews anymore, right? Or um, don't husbands earn their wives' favor back by flowers and gifts? Amen. Amen. <laughs> Or by doing that thing that she's been talking to him for months about doing that he's been putting off? I didn't hear any, a pee from the ladies. I'm surprised on that one. <laughs> so with those kind of examples, doesn't God accept our good deeds as an offset to our bad ones? You know, those scenarios may give us some kind of experience on a human level of offsetting failures and bad deeds by good behavior. It's good to stop doing bad things. Uh, there's a natural goodness that comes out of that uh, because, for example, you're more pleasant to be around when you quit doing bad things. Have you noticed that? And uh, you might keep your job. You might stay out of jail. So it's good to stop doing bad things and start doing good things. But even on a human level, good deeds don't ever remove the stain of the wrongs that we've done. That Those things can never be changed. And the, the effects... The, the fact that it took place can never be done away with. But that standard seems impossibly high 
if that's the standard to actually remove or take away our sin. Uh, no one can meet it if that's, the, if that's the requirement. You know, didn't your parents say to you, or, you know, standard parent-teacher talk is just do your best, just do your best, try to be a good person, do your best. So we're used to that kind of thinking. And so doesn't God accept me if I'm trying to be a good person and do my best? If I try not to hurt anybody? Isn't that good enough for God? You know, last week we talked about the fact that our sins have separated us from God. So over here, the, the baby relationship with the parent, God created us to be with him. He enjoyed being with us. He designed us to be with him. But sin separated us and creates sorrow and shame and grief, like the second picture over there tells the story. These pictures do tell the story of the G-O-S-P-E-L that we're going to be working through this, these three weeks. And, um, and so we, we looked at that. And what we're talking about under this point is that the natural outworking of our separation from God and our spiritual deadness. We can't reverse our alienation from God or produce spiritual life out of our spiritually dead condition. We can't change the fact that we're spiritually dead on our own. We can't uh, undo our separation from God on our own. So sins cannot be removed by good deeds. The Apostle Paul tells us God's view of our, of our good deeds, of our attempts at good deeds in Romans 3. And Paul's quoting from the Psalms here, so it's the Old Testament being quoted in the New. And Paul says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. You say, come on, my grandmother's righteous. And there's at least one. And God says, no, not even your grandmother, not Billy Graham, not anybody. How can God say that? How can God say this about people? Because no one understands. That is, no one gets how holy God is. We think he's like us. We think he's just like a big version of us. No one thinks rightly about God. No no one understands how perfect and and, uh, absolutely righteous his requirements are. So we don't get that. And as a result, no one seeks for God. That is, no one truly seeks for God on his terms. That is, for who God really is. We think we can bargain with God or barter with God, make make deals with God. Uh, We think that God is to serve us. No one really seeks God for who he really is on his terms. And so, therefore, all have turned aside from God and his ways. And together they have become worthless. That is for glorifying God. That's the purpose for which he created us. Our greatest joy would have been to, to live for God's glory. But because of sin, it warps us away from that delight in living for God's glory. So no one does good, not even one. In case you're missing the point, Paul says it again. No one does good, not even one. Surely a few, surely a few do. No, not even one. Because God's standard is absolute perfection. Everyone has the sin infection. And so as Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteous deeds are like that polluted garment, that filthy rag that I threw out. We all haul bags of sin trash around. All of us are hauling bags of sin trash around, polluting the environment wherever we go. We are not eco-friendly, much less God-friendly. You know, when our relationship is broken, when a relationship is broken, our efforts to be good to make, often make it worse if there's no reconciliation and no change of heart. So our, our attempts at being good 
often make it worse. There are no human, religious, or moral efforts that can take away our guilt or purge the stain and corruption of our sin at all. No matter how often we take the garbage out, we keep producing more and more, no matter what we do. This is a person in our church, by the way. Can you believe how, how awful they are? You're not going to find out from me who it is unless you bribe me with something good. And then that would be sin, and then you'd have to add to that. So, yeah. Well, you say, now, whoa, whoa, shouldn't we be preaching a more upbeat message, Pastor, instead of beating us up? Come on. This Christmas, we need some Christmas cheer. Come on. Let's get on with it. Well, here's some Christmas cheer. The cheerful news is this. As the angel announced to Mary's fiancé or betrothed, Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God is not making this up. The reason we needed a Savior is because we can't save ourselves. It is impossible. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We can't save ourselves from our sins by trying to be good. They are that offensive to a perfectly, gloriously holy God. We're used to unholiness. Like I got used to my bad uh, windshield because my wipers on my Durango were, were getting corrupt. And I just didn't notice how bad it was getting until I put on new ones. And suddenly I could see more clearly out the window. And so that's how it is with God. We're so used to seeing corruption, we, we think what is bad is good or what is good is bad. We, just, we don't see rightly how, the way God sees in his perfection. We just don't get how holy he is. And so we think this is extreme. But only God could save us from himself because we deserved to be eternally separated from God and everything good. Again, because he is so holy and because sin is such an offense to him. But, thank God, there's some great news. Titus 3, 4 to 6. Titus 3, 4 to 6 says, But, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So very clearly, not because of works done by us, but because of works done by God. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So these texts make it really, really plain, really super clear, you can't avoid it, that by our good works we cannot save ourselves. Only by God's works in Jesus Christ. Not by our goodness, but by God's goodness through Jesus. But just how did God remove our sins if we couldn't? Does the fact that God saves us by his goodness and grace mean that he just overlooks our sins and lets us off the hook? Is that how God forgives us? And that brings us to the second point. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. If there's anything that is obvious in the Old Testament, it's that sin requires death of the sinner. The only way for sin to be forgiven or atoned for is by the substitution of a substitutionary sacrifice, like the guy in the videos said, which requires the shedding of blood. So, for example, when Adam and Eve first sinned, God provided garments of animals 
animal skins and clothe them, which required the slaying of an animal. So right out of the starting gate, God demonstrated that there needs to be a death. Either the sinner dies or a substitute dies, one or the other. Later, God called a man, Abram, whom he would later name Abraham, to leave his family home in Mesopotamia, that's modern-day Iraq, to a land he would show him that he would later that would later be the land of Israel. God promised Abraham that he would make of him a great nation, that he would multiply his offspring as the stars and as the sand, and that through his offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The problem was that Abram was an old man and his wife Sarah was barren. But God promised they would have a son, and at last Sarah, when Sarah was 90 and Abraham was 100, they had Isaac, the son of promise. And Isaac fathered Jacob, whom God later renamed Israel, And then Israel fathered 12 sons, and that became the nation of Israel. And they moved to Egypt due to famine, and for over 400 years they multiplied as God had promised. So they became a great nation as part of God's promise. At the same time as Egypt's immigration reform ramped up, Israel became slave labor in Egypt. They cry out to God who raises up Moses to to deliver them. You know, you've seen the movie. I don't need to tell you the story, right? It's actually, it comes in the Bible. There is a movie, or several out. God demands through Moses, let my people go. Pharaoh says no, so God sends ten plagues, one, one at a time, including water turned into blood, gnats, locusts, frogs, and a ver- thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening to us. With massive hail. Yes, some of you got that. Before the last and worst of the plagues, which was the death of the firstborn of everyone, God requires each family of Israel to take a lamb, kill it, and smear the blood on the entryway of their, of their homes. This was to symbolize the fact that God would spare Israel's firstborn, not because they don't deserve his judgment, but because God, they were sinful themselves and God provided a way for them to avoid his judgment because God provided a substitutionary sacrifice for their sin. This was called the Passover, and later in the New Testament, Christ is called Christ our Passover. Our deliverer, our deliverance from sin's slavery. Moses then leads Israel out of Egypt towards the promised land, but Israel rebels and sins against God, so they wander around for 40 years before entering the land. They at last enter the land, but they continue rebelling and sinning over centuries. They go into exile again in Assyria or Iran or Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And Israel never could fulfill her role to be God's special people and to bless the nations. So one major question that Israel's constant failure again and again and again to be God's people, we must ask this question. How can a sinful people belong to a holy God? How can a sinful people belong to a holy God? How can a holy God dwell among a sinful people? That was the first promise that was the first his purpose in in creating people was that he would dwell with them so how is God going to pull that off how is he going to do it how could he do it how will he accomplish this dwelling with people who are sinful well God wants the world to know that people cannot save themselves from sins only by God's appointed and approved way of substitutionary sacrifice can sins be paid for So he really wants us to get that, and he spent centuries working in Israel to demonstrate that truth. 
And so we see uh, in Leviticus 17.11, a principle that God had given to Israel for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the light. The point is not that there's something magic about the blood. The point is that blood symbolizes the life of the creature. The life of the sacrificial animal is in the blood. And in the New Testament, Hebrews 9.22 reflects that same truth. Under the law, before Christ came, almost everything was purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, this is a major thing, again, that we were supposed to get from all of Israel's failure and from God's appointed ways for them to have a relationship with him, was apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's why God said in Leviticus, I have given it to you to make atonement. I've I've appointed a way for you through blood to make atonement for your souls, for yourselves, for your lives. So God appointed for Israel a whole system of bloody sacrifices. Lots and lots and lots of ages and ages of blood shed. The sacrifices were mediated through priests in what was called the tabernacle, later the temple, and its various furnishings such as the altar burnt offering and the Ark of the Covenant. The sacrifices had to meet precise requirements. There were daily sacrifices, weekly sacrifices, monthly and yearly. One of the yearly ones we already talked about, the Passover. The Passover represented that God delivers his people by the shed blood of a substitute. And there were, uh, the Day of Atonement symbolized that God will only dwell with his people if the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the atonement, sprinkling it on the mercy seat on the ark. Even the tabernacle, its furniture, and the priest needed atonement from handling sinful people. So, for example, today, I'm really glad that dentists are supposed to wash their hands for three minutes before they treat, treat us because their hands get dirty being in, other, in the mouths of people. So I've never even washed my hands maybe more than three seconds. But dentists and doctors are supposed to wash their hands for three minutes. Is that right? Some long amount of time because they themselves pick up the impurity of the people they're treating. But the Old Testament says that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. God's ultimate purpose for the centuries of the priesthood, the sacrifices and tabernacle and the temple was to point to the ultimate fulfillment of all priest sacrifices and temple and with its rituals, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24, following, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appointed once for all, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Christ became that once-for-all sacrifice in God's presence for us, putting away sin once for all by becoming himself the sacrifice, by the shedding of his own blood for us. So we're not to miss the point that God, in order for God to dwell with his people, sins must be put away. The penalty for sin is death, which is separation from God. The only way we won't have to die for our own sins is through God's appointed substitutionary sacrifice. The only person qualified was and is Jesus Christ because he was and is God with us. So he alone was God. He also was perfect man. 
He alone could be the substitute for us. So he could die in our place. He was spotless, blameless, perfect. He never sinned. Even the demons called Jesus the Holy One of God. He didn't deserve to take the punishment for our sins, but he did. Older generations got it right in some of these old hymn lyrics. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be, hallelujah, what a Savior. Great truth. You say, I don't think God required Jesus to pay for our sins. I just think God loves us so much that he accepts us the way we are. I think God agrees with Billy Joel. I couldn't love you any better. I love you just the way you are. That may make good romantic singing, but it's not, God's not singing that song, except that he's provided a way to turn away his judgment from us. The scripture says that God's love for us as sinners is that he sent his son to be the Here's your vocabulary word for the day, propitiation for our sins. It says this in 1 John 4.10, for example. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means wrath-satisfying sacrifice, the offering that turns away wrath. The cup up here, the picture up here behind me, sorry. Um, is representing what Jesus said the cup represented when he assigned us the Lord's Supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood is the payment. That's the only way, the only way you can have uh, a forgiven, redeemed, ransomed, restored relationship with God is through Jesus shedding his blood. And that's turning away God's wrath, his judgment. Now, some find this comment, uh, concept that God's wrath needs to be satisfied for him to forgive us offensive. Well, it is offensive, actually. It, my sin is really offensive, and the fact that the only way that I could be forgiven is God taking my sin upon his son, that is offensive. But some people equate this with like offering bribes to a capricious, moody, pagan deity to soothe his crazy anger, or like a bribe that a mobster would shake you down for so that nobody gets hurt. A Christian denomination wanted to include the modern hymn, In Christ Alone. You know, in Christ alone our hope is found. They wanted to include that song in their hymnal. But they sought to avoid theological controversy by altering the hymn's lyrics from uh, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to change that to this. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified because they didn't want the concept of the wrath of God to be in their hymnal. The authors, uh, Getty and Townend, said nope, so they left it out of the hymnal. God's wrath is his holy hatred of what is not holy. It is just, it is righteous, and it's always under his control. Don't you get angry at wrongs done? I mean, don't you get angry at bad stuff? Don't you get angry, for example, at child and human trafficking or school shootings or robberies when people are killed by drunk drivers? We recognize anger is, has its place against sin. And human beings are often angry at the wrong things and for the wrong reasons. 
And we're often inconsistent in our anger and out of control. So, for example, I, I heard just within this last week, uh, an angry Walmart employee was angry that the other employee got employee of the month, and so she shot the window out of the person's car. So that was a wrong kind of anger. So we, our anger is messed up large part of the time, isn't it? And so we think, well, God can't be worthy of that. We don't have a concept of perfectly righteous and holy anger. God's anger is perfect. And even if our anger is close to being right, we may not be able to bring justice to the, to the wrong. Uh, God was able to accomplish perfect justice for all who would receive Jesus by faith. So we see this in Romans three twenty-five. Jesus Christ, God put forward as a propitiation, that wrath turning away satisfaction, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. God is an arbitrary or hit and miss in dealing with sin. Every single sin in the world is going to receive judgment. It's either on the cross of Christ or outside, one or the other. Either it's going to be on you, the sinner, or on Christ. Every single sin in the universe is going to be, or has been, punished in Christ. So God's justice is 100% perfect. And God could only be just to count us righteous in Christ by faith, by satisfying his righteous wrath, by pouring it out on his Son as a propitiating sacrifice for our sins. So for God to be just to forgive us, Romans 3.26, he did this to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So in order for God to truly be able to count us righteous in Christ... He had to execute his judgment upon Christ on the cross. And we see similar words in Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from, by him from the wrath of God. So Christ's blood clearly saves us from God's wrath. This is indescribably great love. Don't you hate getting blamed for something that someone else did? I mean, and, and even worse, don't you hate getting the consequences for what someone else did? And yet Christ willingly took that upon himself. Christ willingly was born into humanity so he could die to take our, he could die to take our penalty. And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Linus didn't tell the whole story. He told the accurate part. That's why Jesus was born to die. And because Christ fully and perfectly paid the price for our sins and he was perfectly righteous himself, he deserved to be raised from the dead in a glorious human body. And because of his resurrection, those who receive him get the full benefit that he purchased for us in his death. That's what Romans 4.25 says. Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And this brings me back to the first point. God created us to be with him. He removed all the barriers that our sins created between us and him because we couldn't by our own efforts to be good. And so we will be with him forever and in a closer way than we ever could have. He has taken on a human nature in Christ. That's what God wanted in his great love to remove the sin that separated us so that we could be with him forever to enjoy the glory of the Lamb of God forever. Right into the new heavens and new earth 
Jesus is called the Lamb of God. You'll see it in Revelation 21, 22. He's still called the Lamb of God. Like forever, we'll always be reminded of why we're there. If we're there, you'll be there because your sins were laid upon Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and because he is alive, because he was resurrected. We'll talk more about how we receive that gift next week, but you don't have to wait till then because Romans 10.9 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Knowing that Jesus really in history died for sin and rose again, putting our trust in him guarantees that you will have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we do sing those words on that cross that Jesus died. Your wrath was satisfied. Father, that is offensive to us because it's our sin. Christ didn't have to die. He did because he loved us, because of his great love. There is no, we don't get how deep that love is. Like another song says, how deep the Father's love for us how great, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to save a wretch's treasure. Oh, Father, thank you for so indescribably great of a gift. May we, as hard as it is to hear these truths, may we recognize this is why we needed to be saved. This is what it means to be saved. And only you could save us from your your own judgment and wrath. And you did that in your perfect, glorious, holy son so that we could be with you forever. May we rejoice and be grateful in that truth. And may nobody leave here today without knowing that that is what we are putting our trust in. In your death and resurrection, Jesus, that you really accomplished in time and you really are alive today and and you really are before the throne of God where we have a strong and perfect peace because you are the eternal, your sacrifice was for our eternal salvation. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.